The following audio is from Redeemer Anglican Church in Richmond, Virginia. More information about Redeemer is available online at RedeemerRVA.org. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night and behold the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was a told, arise, and devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying, and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had 10 horns. I considered the horns and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, Nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. The word of the Lord. And now let's stand together for the reading of the gospel. If you still have a Bible in hand, you're going to flip forward to the book of Matthew. And we're going to go all the way to Matthew chapter 26. You can find that on page 833, I believe. And after that long reading from Daniel 7, well done, Lane, uh, we're going to do a very short one, just one verse. Matthew 26, verse 64. 
Friends, this is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Friends, this is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Amen. Let's be seated. Well, once more, good morning, church. Good morning to you all. For those of you who are new, welcome to Redeemer. I see some faces I don't recognize. Welcome. So glad you guys are here. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Dan. I'm very grateful to serve here as a pastor. Now, by way of orientation, we are in a season of the church liturgical calendar that we call Ordinary Time. And I know that's familiar to some of you and probably new and strange to others of you. That's all right. Uh, This is where we are joining with followers of Jesus around the world and across denominations and throughout history and asking really a very simple question. And the question is this, what does it mean for us to be faithful in our place and in our time? And to help us delve more deeply into answering this very simple question, we have worked our way through a sermon series on the Old Testament book of Daniel. And we're calling this series Faithful Presence in the City. And today we have chapter seven. And as we get into it, let me say a prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to one of the strangest, most perplexing, and in some ways most disturbing texts in all of the scriptures, would you please open our minds and our hearts and and even our bodies to understand your word so that we might be changed by it, so that we might live faithfully here in our place and in our time. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, question. Have you ever wanted to peek behind the curtain? And whether that curtain is at work, so you can find out what's really going on behind the scenes, maybe in the CEO's office, or that curtain is in your school, how is the principal or the headmaster kind of running things? I think every single human being, no matter what age you are or what situation in life, you have this kind of gnawing, hungry curiosity inside of you to know what's really going on. And I think this explains our culture and society's continued unending interest in conspiracy theories, right? Conspiracy theories are wonderfully childish things. They are by far the most interesting way of explaining otherwise sort of normal, boring phenomenon. And I was thinking about this the other night because I've been reading one of my children uh, this book called The Magician's Nephew. And it's okay if you haven't read it. The story will still make sense. In it, there are two characters, Diggory and Polly, and they discover an abandoned house. And they begin to imagine all the different things that could be happening in this kind of creepy, abandoned old house in their neighborhood. And they begin to say things like, maybe it's inhabited by thieves or pirates or ghosts. And then Polly mentions that her dad says it's abandoned because the plumbing doesn't work. And Diggory replies, grownups are always thinking of uninteresting explanations. No matter what you think about conspiracy theories, it is undeniable. They are interesting explanations for what's really going on behind the curtain, right? And we all want to know what's going on behind the curtain. This drives our interest in spy novels and spy movies. It explains the existence of brewery tours, right? It's not enough to drink the beer. You need to know how the beer was made, right? Beer's always made the same way. I don't know. You don't have to tour more than, more than one brewery to figure that out. And yet you keep doing it, right? This explains HGTV. We want to see how the homes are built and all the thought behind the creative design process. Oh, that's what shiplap is. Now I understand, right? 
This explains our voyeuristic desire and tendency to read other people's texts and other people's emails and other people's journal entries, right? Like you don't really suspect that your roommate is a sleeper agent for a rogue terrorist state, but you can't be too careful. So you better make sure. Like whenever you pull back the curtain, something is discovered. And that discovery could lead to disgust and disillusionment. Like when you watch a documentary about factory farming and you go, yuck, I didn't need to know that. I wish the veil had not been pulled back. Or maybe the unveiling leads to wonder and delight. How did that light fixture get made? And you see someone blow glass and they pull a glob of molten glass out of the furnace and they blow it into some sort of incredible shape. Wonder and delight in the unveiling. Or maybe the unveiling leads to soothing comfort. Like when you're a kid and you creep down the stairs to figure out what grown-ups do after bedtime. And you discover that your mother is at the sink washing your dirty dishes. And there's this sense that there is someone in the world who's looking out for you. And so you creep back upstairs and you fall peacefully asleep. We all want to know what's really going on, what's happening behind the scenes. And when you peek behind the curtain, what you discover can at times be disillusioning or disgusting or wonderful or delightful or even comforting and reassuring. And this is what happens to us whenever we engage with apocalyptic scripture, apocalyptic literature in the biblical genre. This is what apocalyptic writings are meant to do for us. Now, the word apocalypse is totally misunderstood. It doesn't mean earthquakes, tsunamis, burning landscapes full of wrecked cars and boyfriends who can't find their girlfriends. Like, that's not what apocalypse is. Rather, the word apocalypse just means revealing or unveiling. And this is why we call the concluding book of the Bible, the Apocalypse of St. John, Revelation. That's where that word comes from. And in apocalyptic scripture, what's happening is the thin papery film of our perceived material world is peeled back and the spiritual reality underneath is unveiled. And that might sound a little bit strange or, I don't know, maybe random, except that you've got to understand that according to the story of the Bible, the material and the spiritual realms were actually never meant to be separated. And just going to do a quick little kind of 30-second overview of the story of the Bible in regards to this. In the creation story, in the beginning of the Bible, the material and spiritual realms are one. There's no separation between them. But then there's what Christians call the fall into sin in Genesis chapter 3, and the material and the spiritual realms are divided. This explains why every single human being in this room right now feels like God is distant, right? Do you feel like God is close? No, you don't. You feel like he's distant. That's why. The spiritual and the material have been ripped apart in our world. But in the redemption of Jesus, the spiritual and the material are put back together in a person, in Jesus. And the new creation that Jesus brings at the very end of the biblical story is the material and the spiritual realms rejoined forever. Now, apocalypse is a glimpse over the wall into that reality. It's a peek behind the curtain. And the unveiling is simultaneously comforting and disturbing depending on who you are. In fact, one of the most apt descriptions of apocalyptic scripture is that it comforts the disturbed then it disturbs the comfortable. And this is exactly what's happening to us whenever we read Daniel chapter 7 or hear it read as we did when Lane read this text just a few moments ago. It's very strange. Some of you are visiting Redeemer for the very first time this morning so sorry. 
you picked a weird Sunday. And I would like to say, come back next week, except we've got Daniel 8 next week, which is just as weird. So it's going to be weird for a while. This is a pivotal chapter in the book of Daniel. Verses, uh, sorry, chapters one through six in the book of Daniel are what we call court tales or court narratives. They describe things that happened to the Old Testament prophet Daniel while he's serving out his time in exile in Babylon. But chapters seven through 12 describe visions, disturbing visions narrated by the prophet Daniel himself. And even the language changes in the book and the hinge chapter is chapter seven. Chapter 7 is written in Aramaic. The rest of the book of Daniel, 8 through 12, is in Hebrew. Very interesting. So chapter 7 is this hinge chapter between the court tales of Daniel in exile and the visions that he receives. And in this chapter, Daniel has a disturbing dream, and he needs someone to interpret it for him. And fortunately, in the dream, there's an angel standing nearby who he is able to ask questions to. And the angel, angel then explains what's happening. And as we kind of work our way through this very perplexing, strange, disturbing dream, we're going to see that actually it's three veils that get lifted. There's kind of like a, a reality within a reality within a reality. That's the nature of the dream. And we might call these three different kingdoms. The outer one is the worldly kingdom. And then there's a heavenly kingdom. And then there's what we might call a saintly kingdom. And if you're the kind of person that takes notes, you're welcome to jot these down. Here are like your three big categories. The worldly kingdom, the heavenly kingdom, the saintly kingdom. Three veils that get lifted. Okay, let's lift the first veil in the worldly kingdom. Here's how the dream begins. Uh, Daniel, the author, is speaking and he says, quote, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. The sea is not merely the backdrop for the terrifying vision. It's actually part of the terror. You see, for people dwelling in the ancient Near East in 6th century BC, which is when this is written, the sea is a potent symbol of chaos and destructive evil. And in fact, the Babylonian creation narrative is the story of how Marduk, the head of the Babylonian pantheon, conquers Tiamat, the sea. Um, If you had to study any ancient history in high school or college and you've ever read the Enuma Elish, that's the story. That's the Babylonian creation narrative. It's actually eerily similar to the Canaanite creation narrative in the ancient Near East at this time in history as well, which has essentially the same story arc, only the characters are named different names. The characters are Baal, the hero, and Yam, the sea. But in both stories, the sea is depicted as the original source of chaos and conflict in the world. In other words, for an ancient Near Eastern at this time in history, why is the world as broken as it is? Answer, the sea. So that's the backdrop here. And this actually is why the Genesis creation narrative in the Hebrew scriptures begins with, in verse 2, this phrase, the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. You've got to get this. The Genesis creation story of God's people is deliberately told as a counter-narrative to the dominant creation stories of the warring tribes and nations at this time in history. Their stories begin with the war against the chaos of the sea. The Hebrew story begins with God peaceably in control of the sea. And the difference would have been striking to anybody at this time in history. So Daniel's dream starts off with the sea and it evokes this horror and anticipation of terrible things to come. And then in the dream, terrible things come. It gets a lot worse. 
And you have these four beasts that rise up out of the sea. And these beasts are composite creatures, which is not only visually grotesque, but for an ancient Hebrew, it's theologically grotesque. Here's what I mean. In the Genesis creation story, God makes each creature, quote, according to its kind. And different parts of creation are made to be unique and separate from each other. And this uniqueness and separation is seen, actually in, codified in Israelite law. You have things like Deuteronomy chapter 22, where God says to his people things that we don't understand today, but which made sense in that moment. Things like, don't plant two kinds of seeds in your vineyard. Plant one kind in one field and another kind in another field. Don't plow with an ox and a donkey yoked together. Don't wear clothes with wool and linen woven together. In other words, by virtue of the fact that these beasts in Daniel's dream have different parts of different animals kind of all stitched and patched together, they represent, symbolically, the antithesis of God's created order. They are chaos embodied. And the imagery of the four beasts has this unmistakable similarity to the statue of King Nebuchadnezzar in, Daniel's, in, a, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream from Daniel chapter 2. I know not everybody was, has been here for this whole series, and that's okay. But if you on your own time want to go back and read Daniel chapter 2, you have a different disturbing dream from a Babylonian king named Nebuchadnezzar, and it's eerily similar. In that dream, you have these different a statue made with different kinds of metals, and each kind of metal represents a kingdom. Here you have beasts, and each beast represents a kingdom. There's a parallel happening here. So here we have four beasts and the angel in the dream tells Daniel that they represent four kings and these kings represent four empires or four worldly kingdoms. And let's take each of these one at a time. Beast number one is a lion with eagle's wings that then has its wings plucked off and then it's made to stand upright and it's given, uh, according to the text, a mind of a man. And there are elements in the description of this beast that remind us of the actual life story of King Nebuchadnezzar himself. And again, if you know the story, you'll remember that this totally bizarre moment in Daniel chapter 4, when Nebuchadnezzar loses his mind, lives like an animal for a while, and then regains his mind and he's restored. And so it, perhaps the first beast represents the Babylonian empire. That wouldn't be too much of a stretch. Perhaps that's true. Then you have beast number two. And this second beast is a bear. It's crooked. It's a crooked bear. It's like raised up on one side. I have no idea what that means. And it has three ribs in its mouth. And it's told, arise and devour much flesh. This beast is more violent than the first beast. Are the ribs the ribs of the lion, the first one? I don't know. But we do know that the Medo-Persian Empire conquered the Babylonian Empire. And so perhaps with our historical vantage point, we might suspect that the bear represents the Medo-Persian Empire. It's possible. Beast number three. It's a leopard. Things are getting way weirder. He's got four wings on his back and four heads. Leopards are faster creatures than lions and bears. And with the addition of four wings and four heads, this creature is exponentially faster and more dangerous than the first two. This could be a nod towards the speed with which Alexander the Great conquered all of the known civilized world. No one had conquered the world faster at this point in history, and Alexander the Great had four very famous generals. Do the four heads allude to the four generals? Perhaps. Beast number four. Things are getting really bad. 
The fourth beast is, quote, terrifying and dreadful, exceedingly strong. It has iron teeth, and then it has 10 horns. This beast is not identified with any known earthly animal in the animal kingdom. It's got 10 horns, it's got claws made in, uh, out of iron. Uh, and so you gotta ask yourself, like, does this signify some sort of technological or scientific advancement? Like, what's going on here? And most disturbing at all, of all, at this point, the dream turns into a straight-up full-on nightmare where the beast sprouts an 11th horn that grows up out of the, its head, it displaces three other horns, and then it has eyes and a mouth that speaks. This is so creepy. This reminds me of nightmares I had when I was a kid where I'd run into my parents' room screaming and they would try to get me to tell them what was wrong and it was so horrifying I kind of couldn't articulate it. And then later when you remember it, you actually end up describing the dream and it doesn't sound scary to anybody else but it was terrifying for you at the time. You know what I'm talking about? At the nine o'clock service when I said that, there was a kid in the back that yelled, that's me too. <laughs> and I was like, buddy, I feel you, it's okay. <laughs> The next world superpower after the Babylonians and the Medo-Persians and the Greeks was the Roman Empire. And so does this fourth beast represent the Roman Empire with all of its technological advances? Perhaps. Theologians and commentators have argued about this for, no exaggeration, hundreds of years. And the height of scholarship, which is, of course, the Reddit forum, um, all have different theories about which, you know, kind of empires the beast represent. And there's all kinds of speculation flying around out there. Maybe the beast, maybe the fourth beast is the Soviet Union. Maybe it's China. Maybe it's the USA. Maybe it's Amazon and Jeff Bezos is the little horn, right? He's not that tall. Maybe that, you know. Like, or perhaps the beast represents like liberals and conservatives in politics in the United States. Wouldn't that be a convenient narcissistic interpretation, right? Y'all, it would not be a productive use of our time to speculate on which beast represents which worldly kingdom. Because if the prophet Daniel needed to know, the angel would have told him. He had a chance to ask, and he didn't. And the angel didn't say anything about it. And if we needed to know, we would be told as well. And what's more, if we spent our time focusing on that, we would miss the point. We'd miss the main idea, which is what? That worldly kingdoms rise and fall. But the one thing they all share in common is their violence. Successive kingdoms are established through violence. Kingdoms are taken. They are seized. They are fought for. And listen, this doesn't mean, we've got to qualify this, this doesn't mean that every worldly government is only wicked or only evil or only nefarious. Like, no, worldly kingdoms, earthly politics, it's a, it's a total mixed bag, isn't it? So if you're thinking to yourself right now, ah, this confirms all of my conspiracy theory suspicions that, you know, all governments are just wholesale corrupt. Like, that's not true, and that's not what the text is saying. Rather, every worldly kingdom is at its core a rejection of humanity's assigned place in the created order and an attempt to usurp the role of God. And again, we have to understand our biblical story in order to situate this text in it and understand it rightly. Humans are created in the beginning of the biblical story to rule under God and over the world, over, quote, the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea. But here, in this nightmarish dream, these four beasts, Human kingdoms have become beastly themselves. It's this horrible inversion of the created order established by God. Now, 
Listen, this sharply undermines the narrative of human progress. The idea that right around the corner is a political solution to our problems. And can we just talk present day moment for a minute? With the midterm elections right around the corner, allow the dream of Daniel 7 to speak into whatever hopes and fears and anxieties you have about our current political climate. You know, I know that many of you feel that the plausibility of the Christian faith in our time is diminished with every passing year. And there appears to be, I think to many of us, this oppressive weight settling upon people that makes faith feel impossible. It just wears you out. Who has the strength and even just the energy, for crying out loud, to continue to follow Jesus when there's so much cultural opposition to the things of God? There is something beastly about our secular age. And Daniel 7 lifts the, lifts the veil. It peels back the film, revealing that there is, in fact, a deep spiritual violence underneath our secularism. And if lifting the first veil and exposing the spiritual beastly violence of worldly kingdoms was all there was to this dream, it would only be disturbing, nothing else. But fortunately, there is a second veil to lift. So we've exposed the worldly kingdoms. Now let's lift the second veil and see the heavenly kingdom. We're in verse nine. As I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, his hair like pure wool. The author goes on to describe a throne with fiery flames, wheels of burning fire, thousands upon 10,000 standing before this person. A court is in judgment. Books are opened. And then the horn that was speaking is destroyed. The beast is killed. Its body is burned up. And the dominion of the other beasts is taken away. Now, there's a lot going on here in this next scene. It's like a kind of flash sideways. Who is the Ancient of Days? Well, there's a lot of symbolic language happening. White symbolizes purity, contrasting with the impurity of the hybrid creatures. The throne, I love this, the throne is movable. The court is transportable. The judgment of God enters the chaos and restores order, <coughs> which is so different from how we think God often works, which is that God sits back, maybe thinking his own private judgmental thoughts about us, right? <laughs> Instead, in this story, or in this dream, rather, the judgment of God, who is the Ancient of Days, enters the chaos in order to restore order. And this is subversively taking the Babylonian creation narrative and turning it on its head. Babylonians at this time in history would expect that their deity, Marduk, would be the one to rise up and restore order by conquering the sea. Rather, this deity is greater than Marduk, and there's no war happening here. Instead, court is in session. I love the sentence, the court sat in judgment and books were opened. There is a weighty finality to this. Nothing escapes God's notice. Did you notice that earlier in the service, we prayed what we call the collect for purity? Collect, by the way, is just a collective prayer. It's a communal prayer. All together, we said these words, almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. That's this idea right here. That God is the one who actually sees not only reality in the world, but actually the reality inside of us, the one who knows us through and through. And then the fourth beast is swiftly and unceremoniously dispatched. 
And I love that because for all of his boasting and bluster, the end actually comes pretty quickly. You would expect there to be some sort of elaborate court trial with, you know, arguments given back and forth, but that's not what happens. Instead, it's just done. For other beasts, they are temporarily subdued before they are finally judged. If the first veil lifts the film and exposes the violence of earthly empires, the second veil lifts and exposes the presence of God's power and judgment. It seems like the beasts are in control. When the second veil lifts, we see that they are not. This is like when children are fighting on a playground and a principal is watching them fight and is about to intervene but hasn't intervened just yet. He's, he or she is waiting to see how the fight plays out. Sometimes an authority will allow a criminal to commit the crime and do real harm before dropping the heavy hammer of judgment. God doesn't prevent the beasts from ravaging, but he does not let them wear out the saints forever. God does intervene, and when he does, there's no competition. There's no great battle between good and evil in this story. The powers aren't evenly matched. This is not the light side of the force versus the dark side of the force. You know, physicists will say that um, when a car is accidentally parked on the train tracks and a train comes through and hits it, the difference in power and weight between the oncoming train and the parked car is roughly equivalent to the difference in power and weight between an apple that is hit by a car going down the interstate at 60 miles an hour. The apple just explodes. The car just blows up. The apple doesn't slow down the car. The car doesn't slow down the train. The fourth beast for all of its strength and the little horn for all of its bluster ends up like a bug on the windshield as the court of God is established and order is restored. And y'all, as hard as it is to believe, this is what lifting the second veil reveals to us. You know, when the first veil lifts, we see that underneath the great world empires, there is actually a thrashing beastly violence in rebellion against God and antagonism against the saints of God. And it helps explain why there's so much animosity in the world and why the undercurrent of our time is so fraught with fear and anger. But then the second veil lifts and we see that these worldly empires are temporary and destined for judgment and destruction. And this is actually a deep comfort to a very particular kind of person. You know who it is? The person who is tired. If you are tired, if you are worn out, if you are the kind of person to whom Jesus speaks and he says, come to me all who are weary and seek rest, if that's you, then this is for you. God sees you. There is a soothing balm to those who live disturbed lives. God is not gonna allow the dysfunction and the wickedness and the abuse that you are experiencing in this world to endure forever. Justice is gonna be done. Things are gonna be put right. And so the location of your hope is invited in the story to be cast forward towards the day of the Lord. And the nature of your hope becomes one of patience and long suffering as you are waiting because you know that suffering isn't gonna have the final word. Now that leaves you with a remaining question, right? And the remaining question might simply be, how long? How long is that suffering gonna last? And how will that suffering end? And therefore it's time to answer that by lifting the third veil. We've talked about the worldly kingdom, the heavenly kingdom, now let's talk about the saintly kingdom, lifting the third and final veil. We're in verse 13. I saw in the night visions and behold the clouds of heaven, there came one like the son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom and all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom on that shall not be destroyed. 
So we are introduced to a new character, quote, the son of man. And we've got to just ask ourselves and each other, who is the son of man? Who is this character? It seems to be somebody important. And since it's the year 2022, and since you and I actually have a New Testament at our disposal, and since you are sitting in a church right now and I'm preaching a sermon, the answer has got to be Jesus, right? Yes and no. The answer requires some nuance, and nuance requires patience. So I'm going to ask you to bear with me for just a little bit longer. This phrase, the Son of Man, pops up all over the Bible, and it's actually the term that Jesus used to most frequently describe himself. Do you know that Jesus calls himself the Son of Man an awful lot more than he calls himself the Son of God? And this term, the Son of Man, can be taken literally or apocalyptically. Literally, it's very simple, it simply means a child of humanity. If you were reading a C.S. Lewis Narnia book, you would use language like a son of Adam or a daughter of Eve. But it also has an apocalyptic meaning. It means the human that is destined by God to receive the kingdom of God. Now, you probably wondered earlier why we only read one verse from the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew 26, verse 64, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, and he's quoting directly from Daniel chapter 7 when he stands before the Jewish council, and he specifically calls himself the Son of Man using language from Daniel 7, knowing that the Pharisees and the Jewish council leaders' response to this is going to be to accuse him of blasphemy and heresy, because it's one thing to use that term literally to say, essentially, I'm a human being. It's another thing to use that term apocalyptically and say, I'm the one that all of history has been moving towards because I'm the one that's going to receive the kingdom. This is why Christ is crucified. This is why Jesus goes to his death. And in doing so, in Jesus' humanity, he actually binds himself to us, to the human race. In Jesus' divinity, he is the acceptable and presentable one to God the Father who is the Ancient of Days. And so the destinies of the Son of Man and the human race, stay with me, are intertwined. They are bound up together. Just as the beast, all the different four beasts, represent not only individual kings but whole empires and kingdoms, so the Son of Man represents not only himself but all of the saints. Okay, let me talk to you for a second. Some of you, not everybody in the room is a Christian, and that's great. If you're not a Christian, I'm so glad you're here. If you are a Christian and you've been following Jesus for a while and you, in fact, have been in church for a while, you are probably well used to the idea that Jesus is king and will one day rule and reign over all. That's not news to you. You've heard this before. You might even believe that. What you may not have heard and what you may not have understood and what you may, what you may not yet believe is that you are actually going to reign with Christ. And that the promise for you in this text in Daniel chapter 7 is that the destiny of the Son of Man, who is Jesus, is actually bound up in your own. And that your life and your story and the life of Jesus and the story of Jesus are inseparable from each other because that's what baptism does to a human being. It binds you and your story and your life to the story and life of Jesus. And so your destinies become the same. So the Son of Man represents not only himself, but represents the saints, you and I. The saints are bound up with the Son of Man, receiving the kingdom and ruling and reigning. How? By the Son of Man 
binding up his life with the suffering of the saints. When the Son of Man comes to suffer with and for the saints, then the saints experience the glory and the destiny and the reign of the Son of Man. Do you see the back and forth and how the two become one? How does the Son of Man, Jesus, identify with our humanity? It is in his suffering. Here we see the vicarious humanity of Jesus in his life and also in his suffering and death on the cross. Therefore, the saintly kingdom, listen if you can, is the convergence of the heavenly and the worldly. It's the heavenly kingdom established on earth, the rejoining of the material and the spiritual. The saintly kingdom is, if we wanted to use a really fancy theological word, a sacramental kingdom. Meaning the saints are not trying to escape this world and get to heaven. Did you notice that? That's how we, that's what our imaginations would think the story is saying to us. That as these beasts, these worldly empires ravage and rage over the world, and as the world is fraught with violence and fear and danger and anxiety, and our lives are not what they're meant to be, and we feel so distant from God, but someday God's going to come and pull us out of this world, and then we get to go be in heaven where everything's great. No, it's not the story. Instead, the saints are those who are waiting to receive heaven on earth. And if your life is already bound up in Jesus, you already have it. You already have the kingdom. In just a little bit, a few minutes, we're all going to pray the Lord's Prayer together. And when we do, we're going to use phrases like, thine is the kingdom. Is is present tense. (laughs) The kingdom is already here. And if your life is bound up in the life of Jesus, you have already received this kingdom. The lifting of the third veil reveals that the saintly kingdom has already arrived. But the kingdom is not yet fully here, is it? You do not have it, which is why you feel like you don't. In the Lord's Prayer, you also pray phrases like, thy kingdom come. So thine is the kingdom and thy kingdom come, is and come. Which is it, present or future? Well, the lifting of the third veil reveals that the saintly kingdom has arrived, but has not yet fully arrived. And so in this story, there is therefore comfort for all saints, which is to say all followers of Jesus. And there's comfort at all three levels in all three lifting and unveilings. In the worldly kingdom, we see that we will get worn out and this sets realistic expectations for life. Suffering is normal. It's normative. You're not weird. You're not peculiar. You didn't do something wrong to bring this suffering on yourself. It's normative in the life of a Christian. The first lifting of the first veil sets realistic expectations. The lifting of the second veil, when we see the heavenly kingdom, tells us that our suffering is temporary and limited. And this gives us the resources for endurance and for patience. It's not going to last forever. And then in the lifting of the third veil in the saintly kingdom, the future is glorious, and that gives us hope. Now, what you need along the way as you endure and suffer with patience and hope, you, have, you need foretastes of the kingdom right now. And foretastes of the kingdom are things that you and I receive wherever the rule and reign of Christ is celebrated and practiced. I've got a friend who's training for a marathon right now. When you train for a long race like a marathon, you either have to bring water and food with you while you run, 
Or better yet, there are stations lined up along the way where you can jog by and grab a granola bar or a cup of water or something to give you sustenance so that you can keep going in the race. One of the foretastes of the coming kingdom for a Christian today, right now, today, is Holy Communion. Holy Communion, the very meal to which you and I are all invited this morning. Remember what we said in the very beginning of this sermon, that the spiritual and the material were never meant to be separated? Well, here they are. They're rejoined together in bread and wine, in the body and blood of Jesus, the Son of Man, who suffers for and with the saints. This is an apocalyptic table in which the people of God eat an apocalyptic meal where the veil between the material and the physical becomes so thin, it's nearly transparent. So the invitation is for you to come and taste with your mouth the love of Christ's sacrifice for you. Jesus shares his story with you so that you might share your story in his. And he shares your suffering so that you might share in his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Jesus, we say thank you to you this morning that you have come to us even in the midst of the violence and chaos of this world to bring and restore order so that we might in you receive the kingdom and have a glorious future. Help us, we pray. Amen.